next. A 2014 conversation with WAMC's Alan Shartok and the late author, renowned historian, and FDR expert, Joseph Persico. It's all about Roosevelt's centurions, FDR, and the commanders he led to victory in World War II. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Today I'm delighted because back with us is best-selling historian and biographer Joseph Persico. Joe Persico has also been a consultant, writer, commentator on several PBS and History Channel documentaries, and two of his quotations are inscribed on the World War II Memorial in Washington. Prior to beginning his own writing career, Joe Persico was chief speechwriter for New York Governor and later U.S. Vice President Nelson A. Rockefeller. Of his subsequent work, the New York Times said of Persico's The Imperial Rockefeller, no one has written a book like this about Nelson Rockefeller before. Eric Severide described his Edward R. Murrow, an American original, as the definitive biography of the broadcast pioneer. His book, Nuremberg, Infamy on Trial, was described by the broadcast journalist Howard K. Smith as simply the best account of the trial. This book was a touch. This book was adapted by Turner Network Television as a miniseries that won two Emmy Awards. Persico was the collaborator on former Secretary of State Colin Powell's autobiography, My American Journey, which remained 20 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, Persico's Roosevelt Secret War, FDR, and World War II espionage, also reached the bestseller list and was chosen as one of the notable books of the year. His book, 11th Month, 11th Day, 11th Hour, on Armistice Day, World War I, has been described by historian Richard Norton Smith as the single finest work I have read on the Great War. Joe Persico is also the author of Franklin and Lucy, President Roosevelt, Mrs. Rutherford, and other remarkable women in his life, and his latest book is Roosevelt Centurions, FDR, and the Commanders He Led to Victory in World War II, published by Random House. Welcome, Joe Persico. Good to be here again, Alan. Well, I have to tell you, the last time we were together, and we did an hour-long program, and at the end you said, and I'm writing another book. I'm writing a book about Roosevelt's centurions, the fighters, the generals, the admirals who worked for Roosevelt to win the Second World War. And I have to tell you, I started salivating, and there hasn't been a month, and I know you're going to think this is nonsense, but there hasn't been a month I haven't said... I hope Joe's got that book done because I want to get him in here and talk about one of my favorite subjects. I'm so glad you're here. You've made my day, Alan. So, Joe, let's start and ask you this. FDR was an incredible man. He had dealt with polio all of his life. He was a guy who took on the Great Depression and did something about that. But this is a book about how he treated the military people, in large part, who worked for him. Let's have a little opening statement from you about what gave him that capacity. Well, I had always been fascinated by the fact that President Roosevelt never wore a uniform for a day in his life. Yet he was strongly attracted to the military. And as the United States approached entry into World War II, he seized the levers of control over the military like no president since Abe Lincoln in the Civil War. And uh, my objective in writing the book was to consider his performance in three roles. The first role was as recruiting officer. 
How good were the people that he recruited to fight the war? General George Marshall for the Army, Admiral Ernie King for the Navy, Hap Arnold for the Air Force, Eisenhower to become Supreme Commander in Europe. Then the second thing I considered was FDR as a strategist-in-chief. Now, he left the day-to-day fighting to his commanders. He was confident with them. However, the major strategic decisions he kept in his hands. And finally, I uh, examined him as the morale officer of a nation at war. How well did he perform in having people accept the responsibility and the inevitable loss of a nation fighting in a major world war? These are the three areas that I wanted to see how he performed in as commander-in-chief. You talked about strategy just now. Give us an example of what you mean by strategy. The first major strategic decision that FDR made was, even after we'd been attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, he recognized that we've got to make the number one enemy Nazi Germany because he was wise enough to recognize that the defeat of Japan would not have meant the defeat of Germany, but that the defeat of Hitler would have inevitably marked the end of the war. The other issue was his relationship with Churchill. I'm fascinated by it because Churchill obviously did not want to let go of his colonial empire. Well, in in the beginning, I think Roosevelt looked to Churchill almost as the senior partner because Churchill had a great deal more military experience than FDR. Churchill was a graduate of the British version of West Point, Sandhurst, had been a commissioned officer and fought in the Boer War, had been First Lord of the Admiralty twice, and he was a leader of a nation at war two years before we entered it. So he had an, uh, what I th- conclude is an undue influence over Roosevelt. Uh, most notably, when Roosevelt was trying to consider where the United States starts fighting in the European conflict, all of his top advisors, uh, particularly Marshall and Eisenhower, said the thing to do is to cross the channel at its narrowest point at the Straits of Dover into France, and then we drive on the 500 miles to Berlin. Churchill kept arguing for a Mediterranean initiative, that is, invading North Africa. Why? Because he viewed this as the lifeline of the British Empire and wanted it to be kept open at all costs. Now, Roosevelt's eager to see the U.S. engaged somewhere, so he allows himself to be persuaded by Churchill to go into North Africa first. But it doesn't go that well, does it? It lasts much longer than was expected. It was a costly battle, and I think, ironically, the distance from Casablanca, where we started in North Africa, to Tunisia, where we ended, was a 1,000 miles, whereas the road to Berlin from uh, northwestern France was 500 miles. A lot of historians have pointed out, however, that the American troops were not really battle-ready as they would have been if you put them right over the channel and that this gave them a chance to toughen up. Well, it's an argument that can be made. It can be questioned from this standpoint. The opinion might be that after being engaged in North Africa, being engaged in Italy, it said our men are now battle-seasoned. Interestingly, when the GIs hit the beaches in Normandy in 1944 for the decisive phase of the war, 50 to 60% of them have never experienced combat. They're either new divisions or they're replacements. So, um, you know, I loved your book. I'm just telling you straight out, anybody who doesn't read this is missing a bit. But I wanted to ask you to, st- to, to start. Let's go through 
some of the generals because it's so fascinating. I have to tell you, we're all affected by stupid little things. Uh, when I grew up on Fire Island uh, in the summers, um, we lived in a tiny little house, but behind that house was a big old greenhouse. I'll never forget it. And in that, that was the house that uh, that that uh, Marshall. I was kept being told that that Marshall kept on 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 the beach, um, and that um, and it was a while back, obviously. Tell us about Marshall. Tell us about his character. Tell us who he was. Well, George Marshall was a man of infinite rectitude. Throughout the war, he is really Roosevelt's stout oak, not simply in his role as uh, the army chief but in virtually every important aspect of the war. What's interesting is that George Marshall was a very formal man, and President Roosevelt was a very engaging, charming man who was very capable of seducing practically everybody. So he starts out after he picks Marshall to run the army on that scale, and he he addresses Marshall as George. Well, he can detect the icy disdain Uh, Marshall rejects that kind of immediate, shallow intimacy, and thereafter he remains General Marshall through the end of their experience together. And he didn't mind telling the president when he thought he was wrong. He was very honest and felt that that was his role, to to deliver to President Roosevelt his best judgment. And after one such outburst in the Oval Office, he coming out with some other fellow officers, and one of them said, George, it looks like Guam for you. (laughs) How did he come up? He was a standout from the very beginning. He he, uh, was not a West Point, but a VMI, Virginia Military Institute Mm -hmm. uh, graduate. Uh, He is in the peacetime army, and it's a long, slow slog. He was in uh, maybe 20 years plus before he ever became a general. A couple of times, Douglas MacArthur, who was the chief of the army as Marshall was rising, blocked him a couple of times, Mm. once uh, okayed a transfer of Marshall to a training unit with the Illinois National Guard, which would have been uh, the death sentence for a career army officer, and another time delayed Marshall's promotion to brigadier general. Why? Do we know why MacArthur did that? Well, because MacArthur was a man of towering ego, had to show who was in charge, and was not at all bothered by placing possibly the best soldier in the U.S. Army under his domination. Huh. And um, Marshall's family life, his mother for the Freudians, I mean, what was all of that like? For a man who exuded uh, self-confidence and dignity, he was, let's say, back in his high school days, a little uncertain. And in the book, I describe a couple of Mm -hmm. incidences where he felt humiliated, uh, one of which was kind of amusing to me. We have to remember, we're talking about the horse and buggy days, and his father gives him the chore of cleaning up after the, the horses, and uh, he remarks how crushed he was to see his classmates, particularly the girls, going by, making all kinds of rude noises as he's sweeping up the manure from the sidewalk. But out of this man grows total confidence in the most diffident, admirable manner. Both Eisenhower and Marshall had reasons not to love MacArthur. Well, MacArthur was not admired particularly by Eisenhower. If we'll recall that there was a point early in the war when the Japanese invade the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur is the commander of American and Philippine forces in the Philippines at that time and does not do a good job. He's he's driven back. He's driven out of Manila. 
He's driven down the Bataan Peninsula. He finally is cooped up on this rock called Corregidor, Little Island. And what do we do with this once famous lauded general? And he's now trapped. Eisenhower says, well, let him become the martyr that he would love to be. Roosevelt, more objectively, knows that MacArthur is an egotistical maniac, but says, no, we don't lose this soldier. And he arranges for him to be rescued from certain capture and humiliation from Corregidor, gets him into Australia, and gives him half of the Pacific Theater. And your your point is well taken, that he, Roosevelt, came up with, I think I read this, came up with the I Shall Return. The famous MacArthur pledge that he would come back to the Philippines. Well, what Roosevelt did was make it possible for him to say that. Otherwise, he would have been in a Japanese prison camp. But Roosevelt saw the the morale boosting of a statement like that. To me, the interesting thing is about I Shall Return, which MacArthur promises as soon as he's been rescued from the Philippines. It's not we shall return, sure. not the American army shall return. I, Douglas MacArthur, shall return. He is regarded by many historians, as Montgomery is, uh, the British general, as a not nice guy, as egotist, and they both are. What, in fact, brings him such acclaim? MacArthur was the youngest general in the American army his in father World War One. His, his father had been a great general. His father had been an early hero of the Civil War when he was—they called him the boy colonel. He was probably 18 or 19, won the Congressional Medal of Honor— became a general, a longtime career officer, and his son Douglas, all his life, felt that his mission was to be worthy of his father. Now, obviously, he outstripped his father by a great magnitude, but it always had been a driving force for him. As far as whether he was liked or disliked, like a lot of powerful, charismatic men, he had a coterie. They adored him. His problems were outside of that circle. He got into a lot of trouble over the famous bonus march, didn't he? One of the reasons that Roosevelt had a strong wariness, let's call it, about MacArthur was the brutal way that MacArthur crushed a group of World War I veterans who were entitled to a bonus and wanted it early because the Depression was killing them. They formed the Bonus Army. They marched on Washington. And MacArthur takes personal command of of crushing uh, these people. Roosevelt... At this point, is still governor, and he's about to be elected president. And he points out, in his judgment, there are two truly dangerous men in America. One is Senator Huey Long, dictatorial governor of Louisiana previously. And the second most dangerous man, he says, is Douglas MacArthur. So he knows. And then he leaves him for Harry Truman to take care of in the end, who ends up firing him. Well, Roosevelt rescues MacArthur on a number of occasions. First of all, even though, as I said, he found him a potentially dangerous man, he kept him on as chief of staff of the army, that is the leader of the army, when he became president. MacArthur subsequently uh, semi-retires and goes to the Philippines for the cushiest job he ever had and becomes a field marshal in the Philippine army, if you can imagine that. But instead of having him rot in that backwater, as the war clouds approach, Roosevelt again rescues him, and this time gives him the command of all American and Philippine forces in the islands. And it turns out that he was being paid off also by the Philippine government at the same time. Extraordinary. While he is on Corregidor and essentially trapped, the final arrangements are made by President Quezon, the president of the Philippines, for a payment that was worked out for Douglas MacArthur 
late in the 30s of something like a half a million dollars. Which, then. Which was big money then. <laughs> yeah, big money bet. then. And his salary when he, when he was field marshal of the Philippine Army was about five to ten times what the head of the American Army at that point, George Marshall, was earning. Now we have to bring in Ike for a minute. Ike was sent to work for MacArthur. Well, MacArthur essentially was a field officer running half of the Pacific War at a time early when Eisenhower was in Washington as the War Plans Director. Made his mark, incidentally, as a very incisive, persuasive writer. Now, this is the president who ultimately is uh, mocked for his clumsy handling of the, the English language, which is a, a smokescreen that he carries out. But he makes a mark, even a, a noted by President Roosevelt, for the clear manner in which he presents a case. But the most interesting thing about Eisenhower relates to Marshall. Everybody assumed that as the invasion of Europe approached, we knew eventually we were going to have to invade the continent and drive Hitler out. Everybody knew that George Marshall was going to be named the Supreme Commander. Churchill knew it. Stalin knew it. Harry Hopkins knew it. Mrs. Marshall knew it, and she's preparing to leave their quarters in uh, the Washington area to move into other digs as her husband, she expects, is going to go to England to become Supreme Commander. Roosevelt surprises everybody, as is his want, by instead picking Eisenhower as the Supreme Commander. Why? Not for any lack of talent on Marshall's part. He's a giant of leadership, of judgment, of sober review of conditions. But the president had seen Eisenhower in action. He first met Eisenhower personally in uh, North Africa in 1943 at the Casablanca Conference. Watched him in action in the interim and then met him personally again in Cairo in the same late uh, 1943. And what he recognized was that Eisenhower had a capacity to pull people together, to get fractious generals and fractious nations and fractious elements to work towards a common goal. To put it most concisely, he was a great political general in the most positive interpretation of that word. Franklin Roosevelt recognized this, and it's interesting, he then gives Eisenhower the supreme command who leads the invasion of D-Day and the final defeat of Germany. He goes on, consequently, to become a president of the United States twice. Marshall, a heroic figure in his age, is largely unremembered today. But I want to ask you a question. Let's assume for a second, this is a, you know one of those what-if so-and-so played first base for the Yankees. What if Marshall had been chosen? Would Marshall have had a shot with his gravitas demeanor of being a president of the United States. Well, I think he might have carried it over simply on the strength of his character, but he didn't have Ike's magnetic smile or, or warmth. Eisenhower not only was a, a fine allied supreme commander, he was a good political candidate. Now, let's go back to the relationship between the president and Marshall. Pretty interesting stuff in that Marshall was his rock of Gibraltar. And well, maybe everybody pays attention to Eisenhower getting this because he had this capacity or that capacity. It may well be that uh, Roosevelt just didn't want to lose his rock. Well, Roosevelt had a pretty strong team that that were within arm's length of him throughout the war. That is Marshall running the Army, Ernie King running the Navy, Hap Arnold running the Air Force. And it was a good working team. And he, as he said himself, in justifying his act of of bypassing Marshall, I couldn't sleep comfortably without you in Washington. I'm sure there was something to that. But at the same time, he had to know that the ultimate dream 
and the ambition of a guy like Marshall would have been to lead the American forces in the defeat of Germany. I once read a story somewhere that Kay Summersby, who was alleged to be Eisenhower's mistress during those years, she certainly was his constant companion and driver, was a bone of contention between Marshall and Eisenhower, and that Eisenhower was told by Marshall to cut it out. Do you have any understanding of that one? Well, it was very clear that these kinds of relationships made Marshall very nervous. And he had one general who was overseas who became involved with a secretary, chastised, and brought the woman back overnight to the United States. And in the case of Eisenhower, it's a little more complex. He was made uncomfortable by Eisenhower's relationship with Kay Summersby. On the other hand, FDR had met Kay on the two occasions which I just spoke of. Loved her. He was very taken with a comely woman, and she was a charmer. She was attractive. She was smart. And he made her sit next to her, I, that, as that's, I remember. That's right. At, 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 at one point when the president is in North Africa, uh, he's going out on a picnic, a little relaxation, R&R, &R, and uh, he is in the staff car where he's being driven to a, an attractive oasis, and they stop for the picnic, and he, he invites the driver, Kay Summersby, to come and sit alongside him. He was very taken with her, and even more significant, the president would never have been put off by the fact that this woman was offering an opportunity for Dwight Eisenhower to unwind, to have some little enjoyment, to keep his spirits up, because at the same time— He was doing it. FDR <laughs> is receiving visits from his one-time mistress, Lucy Mercer Rutherford. And not only that. We now think, you know, there were several others also in his cousin, and um, there was just a major feature film about that. And so, yeah, you make a very good point. Well, as I wrote in my previous book, Franklin and Lucy, you did. the remarkable relations between FDR and women, he almost needed, like oxygen, the adulation and approval of women. Uh, I don't know how sexual it could be because of his physical condition, but he really thrived on it. And uh, Kay Summersby fit the profile perfectly. He concludes, as I've just suggested, that if that's what Eisenhower needed to keep up his spirits and fight the war, fine. Now, Eisenhower had issues. Uh, he was hospitalized a couple of times, as I remember it. He had infections, the rest of this kind of stuff. But he soldiered on. He was a big smoker, wasn't he? Ike must have suffered every form of nervous malady during the war years because of the stress that he's under. Sure. He's running the show. He starts out as a two-pack-a-day smoker winds up as a four-pack-a-day smoker. Whoa. And, the, the, well, you and I can just imagine the pressure you feel under on the verge of D-Day. You're sending 160,000 men on the beaches there. The expectation is that the, that the uh, coast is going to run red with the blood of Allied soldiers. So his behavior uh, in developing these kind of psychosomatic conditions is hardly surprising. Now, Joe Persico, what was the relationship as this invasion begins to take form between the president and Ike? Well, he tends to support Eisenhower. The one place where I think that he was a little concerned was he wanted initially to take Berlin. Eisenhower initially wanted to take Berlin. But as the war progresses and the Allied forces are coming in the Russians from the east, the Anglos from the west, it becomes questionable to Eisenhower whether or not there's any point in taking Berlin. He gets estimates from his subordinates of maybe 100,000 American deaths. That's 100,000 telegrams going out to American families. And an agreement has already been made 
that post-war Berlin will be divided among the Allies, separate occupation zones. So instead of moving on Berlin, he moves south to join the Russians below Berlin and split the uh, Nazis in that fashion. And by the time all of this is decided, Roosevelt's dead. So we don't know how insistent he might have been that Eisenhower at least try to race the Russians to Berlin. You know, you made a, a point about how the how the English, the British, were doing the heavy lifting for a couple of years before America came in. Certainly, Uncle Joe Stalin was carrying a huge part of all of this. Roosevelt has Harriman over there yeah. in, in the Soviet Union. So how did that play? And this is a tough question, but how did that play in his relationship with his military people? Because obviously they had to be very cognizant that Stalin was doing the the hard work. Well, that's why Roosevelt made a number of decisions, which can only be explained by his determination to keep the Soviet Union in the war. Because... Aha! Uh -huh. This is very important. As it proceeded, the Russians were killing eight Germans for every one that the Western Allies were killing. And they were taking eight casualties for every one sure. that the Western Allies were taking. So Roosevelt is clearly conscious that if that Eastern Front ends, yeah. then the Germans turn everything around and head west. So he made a number of decisions which have been questioned ever since as to why he so caved in to Stalin, but they made sense. Absolutely. Now, just to put a point on what you just said so everybody gets it, Joe Persico, the big fear with Churchill and with Roosevelt was, as I read your, your wonderful book, was that they were going to turn around and Stalin would make a separate peace with Hitler, and that would take him out of the war. Not hard to believe because as Stalin becomes FDR's ally and he becomes Churchill's ally. It's only about a year and a half since she, he made peace with Hitler, the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, yeah. in which they very happily carved up Poland like, like a turkey. The Germans took the western half and the Russians took the eastern half. So it was not beyond the realm of possibility that if things got tough enough for Stalin, he would have made peace. And as we've just pointed out, that would have been disastrous for the West. So let's talk about some of the other military guys that we're interested in here. One of them is Hap Arnold at the Air Force. Now, this is an interesting guy in that, remember, we didn't have a separate branch of service. I don't have to tell you, remember. You'll tell me. But the Air Force was part of the Army. It was the Army Air Corps. Sure. And therefore, Roosevelt did something that you point out, which is to promote Hap Arnold you know, even though he was not, you know, in charge of a major service, he put him around the table with him, and there was nothing the other guys could do about it, and he basically promoted him without having to do anything. What's intriguing to me about Hap Arnold, this guy who becomes the creator of the American Air Forces in World War II, he learned to fly under the Wright brothers. It shows Isn't how... Isn't that a great story? <laughs> you told a great story. He was taught by Wilbur it, and, it, you know, it, Orville. It just shows how quickly aviation moved. Because here's a guy that learns how to, to fly in one of these motorized kites and winds up commanding the largest and most effective air force by the end of 1945. But uh, he is a, an interesting character in, in this sense. He was not a political ally of Roosevelt's. Very few military people were. It's like today most of them tend to be conservatives. But he was completely won over by the fact that Roosevelt appreciated the potential 
of air power and backed everything that Hap Arnold wanted to do. In fact, they were much alike in this sense. Roosevelt was a great manipulator, a very cunning, crafty guy. Well, what Hap Arnold would do is he would go to the aviation people, manufacturers of planes, and he'd say, you've got to increase production because there are more pilots coming out and we need planes for them. Then he would go to the Air Force and he'd say, you've you got to produce more pilots because they're going to be producing in industry more planes than you can man. So he was, he was a very uh, clever, almost cunning fellow. But by the end of the war, he is commanding, as I say, this great Air Force. Interestingly, he grants Roosevelt the role as the father of the U.S. Air Forces. He recognized that it was that indispensable support. How come he was called Hap? Interestingly, he was not particularly always happy, and he was a very tough boss, very tough boss. He had a facial tick, which tended to pull up one corner of his mouth so that he looked like he was perpetually in some kind of amused state of mind, so he became happy. I mean, it is mind-boggling, as you say, to think that he took his original flying lessons on, you know, from Wilbur and Orville Wright, <laughs> And then you think of these giant planes that are dropping bombs all over Germany, and you think of the progression from one to the other. just extraordinary. A thousand plane raids going on night after night towards the end of the war. And you just go back to Kitty Hawk, which is, what, 40 or so years before. I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble spatially figuring all of, all of that out. Okay, so he makes Arnold into an, a major figure. What about the Navy? Who's he got there? Well, he has picked Ernie King to be the U.S. Navy commander. King is a tough, almost mean-spirited man, you might say. And uh, full of himself and, and his rank, right? Exactly. Yes. And w one of the things that Roosevelt comments is that he understands that Ernie King shaves with a blowtorch. Yeah. He was this kind of a leader, which is upside down from good management practice. He would praise a man in private and chew him out in public. So there was a, lo a lot of friction. He was a hard guy to work for. But he so, took his rank very seriously, right? In other words, he was supposed to be talked to by so-and-so, and, and, and he didn't like it when no, anybody— he didn't like it yeah. when Hap Arnold, as you pointed out a moment ago, yeah. was still a part of the Army. Then Roosevelt gives Arnold a seat at the Joint Chiefs' table, and Ernie King practically ignores him as though he's not there. But Ernie King also has to be pushed by Roosevelt. There are tremendous ship losses at the beginning of the war. At one period, four ships a day are being sunk. And uh, this is going to starve England. It is going to make us difficult to get our forces over to Britain for the eventual battle. And Roosevelt has to really lean on Ernie King because Roosevelt took these kinds of positions. He didn't just leave hands off to, to everybody else to decide these matters. And he essentially coerced King into developing the convoy system. Ultimately, King didn't want to do it. Ultimately, he does. And it's the one thing that stopped the and carnage he, of the he, ships. The ship losses plummeted after that, and eventually the Nazi wolf packs are suffering such losses that they have to pull out. Yeah. Did I see Curtis LeMay's name come up somewhere in your book? Curtis LeMay, uh, at, the, at one point, is commanding the American forces in the Asian theater. And now, we speak of the horrors of the uh, atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and hor horrible indeed. But the greatest death-dealing blow of the war is orchestrated by Curtis LeMay. He realizes that the Japanese cities are made to a large extent of paper and wood. He has 
American bombers on the night, I believe, of May 9th, 1945, stripped of all their armaments so that they can carry a massive bomb load. They fly in at almost treetop level, bomb Tokyo and other major Japanese cities. And in that night, something like 125,000 people perished over a number of hours. Now, years later, we find out Curtis LeMay is a bit of a madman. Um, (laughs) You know, he he gets into terrible trouble for saying we should nuke the Chinese, I believe, and the rest of it. Did Roosevelt have trouble with him during this time? I would say that he balanced him fairly well. I don't think that he had all that much difficulty managing LeMay because, for one thing, as I mentioned, Roosevelt did not interfere in the day-to-day conduct of the war. He made the major strategic decision, but he would not have dealt directly (laughs) with Curtis LeMay. LeMay would have been under Hap Arnold. And it's interesting, the the raid that I just described, LeMay went off on his own hook because he was afraid that if it failed, it might reflect on the Air Force and he was ready to take the hit. Let's go back in time a little bit between the First World War and the Second World War and the trial of Billy Mitchell and the use of air power and the Roosevelt penchant for the Navy, which you have just told us about. Was there a shift in the paradigm of of the forces in this period? Well, the uh, Air Force started to command Roosevelt's closest attention and support, but the Navy was always his pet. I mean, he, he had grown up on boats. He was a, a great yachtsman. He had an ambition when he was a young man to go off to Annapolis, but his mother could not bear the thought of being separated from her only son for long periods of time. And indeed, he becomes assistant secretary of the Navy in World War I. He has this pension, which drives Marshall crazy, of referring to the other branches of the military as them, they, but the Navy is us, we. Wow. What about Nimitz? Nimitz was probably a better choice to run the uh, Navy than Ernie King. He was certainly as able, and he was much better in his relationships with his subordinates, much more understanding and better management style, so that had Roosevelt made him the Navy chief, it would have been a lot less wear and tear on the other admirals who had to fight the war because Ernie King was very difficult. But Roosevelt had supreme faith in Nimitz right after Pearl Harbor. He calls in Nimitz and says, Chester, I want you out there in the Pacific and don't come back until that war is won. So it was very high on Nimitz. I wanted to talk to you about, you know, his role, Roosevelt's role. He's the commander-in-chief, and he's capable of cajoling people, but he's also capable of taking heads. In other words, firing people. Well, he was very unlike Churchill in that respect. Churchill liked to fire. Churchill fired admirals and generals <laughs> left and right. Roosevelt's top team, as I've mentioned, the heads of the three services were in place from the beginning of the war to the very end. Also, he he gave his generals quite a bit of slack. Let's take George Patton. George Patton did some awful things. Uh, He slapped a kid. He he slapped a couple of GIs who were in hospitals, what we would call shell shock, slapped them. There was a furor, furor in the United States, people calling for his his scalp. Uh, Roosevelt took the attitude that... uh, unfortunate, but this guy is a scrapper. He's got dash, he's got fight, and he can win battles for us. And his attitude was was almost what Lincoln said about Grant when there were rumors that Grant drank. Let's find out what brand he drinks. <laughs> he took a similar attitude towards Patton. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the relationship between Patton and the president. 
Well, he had Patton in his office at one point before Patton was to go abroad and lead forces. And he said, Georgie, I hope that you're going to go into battle with your saddle blazing and your sword high. And after that visit, he pens a personal memo to be put in his files. And he says in this, George Patton is a marvel. George Patton is a wonder. So he was quite taken by Patton. Patton could do some awful things. On, on one occasion, as the fighting progresses in Germany, Patton learns that his son-in-law, who has been a prisoner of war, is only about 40 or 50 miles away in his imprisonment. And Patton sends a strike force. In effect, he says, to liberate the prison, but really to rescue his son-in-law. And in the course of this, 29 GIs die. He was a man of very selfish attitudes, but again, he earns his keep by the things he did. When during the Battle of the Bulge, we had Bastogne was under siege. Eisenhower goes to Patton and says, what can you do about it? Patton says, I'll just send my forces on a 90-degree turn north instead of, <laughs> of east, and he breaks the siege of Bastogne. But as the war begins to resolve, then politically he can't be tolerated in the way he could when you really needed a general's general. Patton was so impolitic. He is in England at one point waiting for the D-Day invasion to occur, and he's running a paper army led to deceive the Germans, and he's invited by a group of British ladies to come and speak to them. And he goes there, and he does a typical Patton foot-in-mouth device. He says, when this war is over, the Western allies are going to have to take charge of this world. He leaves out the Russians who are suffering the brunt of the war. So again, there's this furor over Patton, and his his scalp again is being sought. But Roosevelt sticks with him. He has his eye on the ultimate objective, win the war. Is this a guy can advance us towards winning the war? Leave him in place. You made an analogy before. I wonder if we could follow it up for a minute. Lincoln had his generals, and Ike and, um, and the president had theirs. Who would you most compare in the Civil War? Would it be Grant to Patton? I think Grant was a much more judicious man and much more capable than Patton would have been to run the entire northern military. I think Patton, because of his hair-trigger behavior, would have been out of his depth in that position. What about some of the foreign generals? How about Montgomery? Now, Montgomery is one of those guys that often is written off by historians as being, you know, intemperate and egomaniac and the rest of it. Yet he was a pretty good soldier, wasn't he? Well, when the British are fighting a losing cause in North Africa, it's Monty who turns it around and wins the battle at El Alamein, and he subsequently becomes Montgomery of Alamein. And for the first time since the war started, the church bells start tolling in England. So he's a, a great rallying hero for the British people. He, too, was enormously arrogant. Eisenhower tells a story at one point when he's Monty's boss, and they're at a briefing, And Eisenhower, big smoker, lights up, and Monty says imperiously, I don't allow smoking in my presence. (laughs) And and another... It wasn't that he was wrong, by the way. (laughs) And and he was early to it. Yeah, he's prematurely wise. But another one of his fairly close associates described him as like a little terrier, yapping and biting at the ankles of people around him. He was a small, diminutive, feisty guy, but he was on balance, you would have to say, a fine general. Patton hated him. Well, there was always rivalries there, over, particularly over who would get the bulk of support, gasoline, tanks, guns, air cover, etc. And Patton, however, generally lost 
the sure. arguments to Montgomery because Montgomery was far above him. And our forces in the war against Germany, Eisenhower is behind-the-scenes power. He runs the show. But on the ground, you have Montgomery and the American general, Omar Bradley. Mm-hmm. So there's no direct competition between them and Patton. However, Patton is never convinced that he's getting enough support or getting enough credit. Tell us about Bradley. Bradley was called the soldier's general. He dressed like a GI except for the stars on his shoulders. His manner was very understated. At one point, he is on a hillside in France, and he's announcing to his staff how they're going to conduct the next uh, operation. And he's got one of these tripods with a Mm. a board, a paper on it, and he's sketching in what he's going to do. And an American correspondent in his story says, well, he sounded like a professor guiding his students in a a rather complex arithmetic progression. So he was understated. Interestingly, he was was overwhelmed or overpowered by Patton's ego and his self-dramatization. But Eisenhower recognizes, as I suggested a moment ago, that Patton does not have the temperament to control large groups or to make people cohere and work together. So much to Patton's chagrin, he becomes subordinate to Homer Bradley in the campaign in Europe. What about Mark Clark? Clark, I hate to keep repeating this, but Clark was another giant ego. Clark doesn't go down in history. You read a lot about Clark, and people didn't like him. Well, the, the, the thing about Clark is that he was unfortunate in this respect. He was one of the generals who very seriously questioned Roosevelt's decision to invade Sicily and Italy. He did not at all think it was necessary. All it was going to do was slow down what had to be done, which was to invade Western Europe and push on to Berlin. Ironically, he becomes the American commander in Italy, not what he would have chosen in the first place. And he runs into a couple of difficult situations there. Well, we will remember the destruction of the Abbey at Monte Cassino, that in effect happens on his watch. He questions it very much, but there's a New Zealand general who was on the ground uh, and makes the immediate decision, and uh, he is backed by uh, General Mark Clark. Then Clark is striving to beat the British into the liberation of Rome. He uh, ends up in a tie with the British, and Roosevelt by now has discounted this victory, and on the eve of D-Day invasion, he makes a radio address in which he speaks of the conquest of Rome, but his heart is not really in it. The crawl up the Italian peninsula has been a bloody slog. It's very questionable as to whether it was necessary at all. His thoughts are on D-Day, which is going to occur the next day. So Mark Clark doesn't get the kudos and the glorification that he would have hoped from liberating the Italian capital. So is this French general. Nobody liked him. Churchill didn't like him. The Americans didn't like him. They all wanted a competitor for French power. But he goes on to be, of course, the great, I don't mean my personal view, but the great de Gaulle. How did he relate to the president of the United States, to well, Roosevelt? I would start off by saying I, I find de Gaulle a very uh, heroic character because when France is fighting a very poor war against the Germans and is defeated in something like six weeks, de Gaulle wants to fight on, gets himself to Britain, raises the French free forces, does a terrific job. His problem is that the man has a towering ego to match something like six foot six or six foot seven frame. 
And Roosevelt is put off by the fact that the man has a very imperious manner and also that, in effect, de Gaulle declares himself the leader of France. And Roosevelt takes the position, well, this egotist was never elected by anybody. He's kind of self-declared as leader of France. So he, he grates on that, and he's not uh, as supportive of de Gaulle as he, as he could have been. Churchill was also, oh, terribly critical of de Gaulle. And you may recall that the famous line as this de Gaulle is pressing for more recognition, more support. Churchill says something to the effect is, where is another Joan of Arc yeah. <laughs> we could use a cross, in effect, to burn uh, de Gaulle on? But I, I think he's an admirable figure on balance. Do you think that the way de Gaulle was treated by these guys during the Second World War, I've often thought about it, turned him into uh, you know somebody who really gave the Americans and the British a very hard time later on. Well, he kicked them out of France when he was the president of France. And it may have, may have been because he was treated very cavalierly. For example, the invasion of Europe is going to begin in his homeland. Our uh, allied forces are going to hit the beaches at Normandy. De Gaulle expects to be a, a great player in this enterprise. He is deliberately kept out of the loop. And nobody tells him until the night before when, in effect, they hand him a script to read over a radio, over the BBC, asking the French to support the Allies. But he's miffed, and he's essentially, he is ignored, which didn't create a very warm feeling in him. And to answer your question, that may have been a carryover to the point when he kicks the NATO forces out of France. Now, you've done a wonderful job of telling us about Roosevelt and his generals and his admirals. What happens when Roosevelt dies? How much of the team that he had assembled stays the team? And what does Harry do, Harry Truman do, in terms of the relationship that had grown up? Well, Truman essentially leaves the team in place. It's interesting to me to ask, how did these very strong, independent individuals who are heading the armed forces, uh, Marshall, Arnold, King, Eisenhower, etc. How did they take it when I when the president suddenly dies, and uh, on April twelfth, nineteen forty-five? They're hard, tough men. They're they're used to expecting mass loss of life by the decisions they make. Eisenhower's pretty hard hit by it. Wonders how the country can go on without this father figure at the helm. Marshall takes it equally hard, but Truman keeps them all in place and they go on to the end. The big change for Harry Truman is that he is finally apprised of the existence of the plan to develop an atom bomb. And he learns this on the, practically his first day after Roosevelt's death, and he's told by the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. And that very largely shapes the behavior of the American uh, leadership from then to the end of the war. Are we gonna need massive forces? to invade Japan and suffer exorbitant losses? Or will we have this bomb ready? And Truman does not hesitate. He wants that bomb developed and used. And did he get anything, uh, any negatives, any nays from his war group, his joint chiefs or marshal or anything? Well, none of the military men would have objected to his use of the bomb. Well, the interesting thing there is that the concern, the discomfort with the use of the bomb developed among the uh, scientists who had 
made it possible. Sure. I started to have second thoughts about the horrific capacity to kill. Einstein, the, Oppenheimer, you know, those, those guys. So, the, the, so there, were, the, there were some uh, suggestions mm -hmm. made to the leadership, to Truman and to the military, that maybe we ought to just drop this on a deserted island just to show how great it is. But the decision is made, no, we've got to use it operationally. You think that there was uh, such animus because of Pearl Harbor that we would have used it in Japan but not in Germany? Not true. Not true at all. And I'll explain to you why. The Battle of the Bulge is a great shock. This is in December 1944 when a supposedly beaten Germany turns around and launches a major offensive in, in the West called the Battle of the Bulge because of the bulge it created in the line. It is one of the most deadly contests of the war for the American people. 19,000 GIs die in the Battle of the Bulge. 19,000. Roosevelt is very concerned that the Germans still have, have this much whip in their tail, and he calls in Leslie Groves, who is running with Oppenheimer the development of the A-bomb at Los Alamos, and he says, are we ready? Can we use this bomb now? And he wants to use it against Germany. And Leslie Groves explains that it's just not ready yet. It will be months before they know if it's operational. So while I've, I've heard this case that Roosevelt was willing to use the bomb against the yellow race, but not against the white race, not true. Joe Persico, when you take a look back at the way in which Roosevelt used his people, the way in which he developed Eisenhower, the way in which he kept Marshall in place, the way in which he sort of sneakily promoted Hap Arnold to a major position without mm -hmm. having to reorganize things— does he go down in history in terms of warfare throughout our history as a great president? Was he a great commander-in-chief? As I said earlier in our discussion, I examined him from three roles. One was his recruiter-in-chief, and I think undoubtedly he picked very fine people. A very great war was conducted, and so you have to factor that in. And he kept them there even if he didn't like them? Yes, he kept him in place, and so that has to make a contribution to wh whether your victory is delayed or, or hastened the quality of the people who are running the war, and he picked them. Also, I would give him very high marks for his performance as the, the morale officer of the American people. First of all, you just take his speech uh, the day after Pearl Harbor. No matter how long it will take, the American people will win an absolute victory, and we all believed it. Next, he... He takes the position that the GIs must not be forgotten when they take off their uniforms. He launches the GI Bill, one of the most, I think, significant social measures in American history. You bet. It, it elevated millions of people who would have gone back to ordinary careers and into the middle class and into the professions. Another thing that he did, which I thought was really indicative of what kind of a, a morale officer he was, he would make these fireside chats. And for example, in one of them, Alan, he says, I want all of you to get your maps out. Make sure you've got a map handy, and we're going to trace the progress of the war together. So he's pulling the people. He's getting cohesion and unity in the American people. One other little thing about morale that I found interesting, he certainly expected that healthy athletes would be drafted or taken as volunteers. But he realized the role of baseball in the American spirit, and he allowed Major League Baseball to take place throughout the war. When some people question 
doing that. Of course, they weren't the greatest teams with the Bob Fellers and the Joe DiMaggio's, et cetera, in uniform. But he was very good at maintaining the spirit of the American people. And I don't think that there was ever a time in which he led them to think other than, we're going to win this thing. Well, Joe Persico, I'm sorry to say we're out of time because I could be sitting here talking to you for the next three days as far as I'm concerned. You are so smart. Our guest has been best-selling historian and biographer Joseph Persico. His latest book is Roosevelt Centurions, FDR, and the Commanders He Led to Victory in World War II, published by Random House. All I can say is run out and get it. You will not be disappointed. Joe, once again, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. I'm Alan Chartok. Always a pleasure to be here, Alan. That was WAMC's Alan Shartalk in a 2014 Encore interview with the late author, renowned historian, and FDR expert, Joseph Persico. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartalk, president and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and professor emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.